0: This morning, as we have some time in the Word of God, and I'm very grateful for it, I want to draw you to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I want you to open your Bibles because I want to do an exposition of a text that I think is very, very pertinent for us. There is a lot in this text. There is a a large amount that could be said. It normally might take me several sessions to preach through this, but I'm going to give it to you in one shot this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 A very, very significant, powerful, and dramatic uh, passage of Scripture. And I want to address the subject of the danger of spiritual privilege. The danger of spiritual privilege. I suppose it goes without saying that uh, we who are here a part of the Master's College are among the spiritually privileged. Not just to be a part of a great Bible conference, not just to be a part of Churches where we worship the Lord and hear the truth proclaimed, but to be a part of a college where godly men and women are our teachers and mentors, and there are godly young people who are our friends and, and our RDs and RAs, and uh, where godly people on the staff influence our lives, we're really in a, in a tremendously privileged environment. And not just in a Christian college, but in one that upholds the word of God and that exalts the Lord Jesus Christ and is true to the historic faith and all of those good things. And uh, there is an imminent danger to those who are involved in such high spiritual privilege. Let's look at verse 1 and just listen as I read. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and twenty-three thousand fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Now that is a a powerful reminder that is a summary of the nation of Israel falling in judgment and falling from great privilege the context here is identified if you go back to chapter 9 the last verse Paul said I'm very concerned at the end of verse 27 that I myself should be disqualified I'm very concerned that I somehow might have to forfeit my spiritual privileges. I have been called to preach, he says. I have been immensely blessed. And he has just gone through his testimony. He has talked about how the Lord came to him and called him into the ministry and charged him that he had to preach the gospel. And what a tremendous and immense privilege it is to do that. And at the end of the chapter, he talks about how he's going to do it faithfully and he's going to discipline, he's going to buffet his body and he's going to run the race to win and he's going to box uh, uh, with reality, not shadow box. And he's very concerned that he be faithful to his calling and not be disqualified. And as he thinks about disqualification, as he thinks about wasted spiritual privilege, he's immediately drawn to the tragic story of Israel. A privileged people who forfeited that privilege and fell into judgment. And the reason he's saying this is because he's concerned about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was impressed with its own credentials, founded by the Apostle Paul, ministered to by Timothy, ministered to by Titus. It had even been ministered to by some traveling preachers from Jerusalem who supposedly had uh, had apostolic credentials, although that was not the case. They were enamored with their uh, size, they were enamored with their prosperity, they, in fact, according to chapter 4, verse 8, believed they were rich and they were kings, and they were very enamored with themselves, and as a result, they thought they stood. And they were on the brink of falling. In fact, they had ignored self-denial, the Corinthians had. They had uh, spurned self-control in their lives. And they engaged themselves in undisciplined liberty and undisciplined freedom. And they were on the edge of real disaster. In fact, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians points out one potentially devastating sin after another. It starts out with their preoccupation with divisive groups it talks about in in the third and fourth chapter their love for for human wisdom and philosophy it talks about their immorality and their sexual sin it talks about their their inability to divorce themselves from engaging in sexual acts with prostitutes, it talks about problems in marriages, it talks about lawsuits, it talks about a perversion of spiritual gifts, and they were involved in in uh, idol feasts and engaging in the worship of demons. I mean, there's just an endless string of things that could be classified as iniquities that put them on the brink. But in the middle of it all, they thought they were just celebrating their liberty, and they were rich, and they were full, and they were kings, and they had it all. And in their undisciplined liberty they were on the edge of disaster and undisciplined liberty will always put you on the brink there is liberty in christ and certainly we celebrate that and here at the masters college we give you freedom because we believe you have the right to that freedom in the economy of god's design but an undisciplined freedom brings you to the brink of disaster and the illustration of israel is given to awaken them and to awaken us to the reality of potential spiritual disaster. Let's start by looking at the first five verses and see the privileges that Israel enjoyed. Verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. By the way, the word all is repeated five times. And the reason it's repeated five times is to stress that without exception, the Israelites all received the blessing of God. Everybody was a beneficiary, everybody. All our fathers, he says, were under the cloud. All of them passed through the sea. What does that mean? It means they all received great spiritual privilege in being led out of Egypt. And you remember that they were under the cloud. What is that? The cloud that led them was the cloud of the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of God. In other words, they all experienced divine leading. They had all been in the midst of a company of people led by God. In fact, in Exodus 13, 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them. They all experienced God's leading corporately. They were, a, they were a part of a community of people being led by God. And they were led by God, you remember, through the sea, the Red Sea. And that was the basic touchstone of God's power because God parted the sea and led them through it on dry land. And thus they were the beneficiaries of divine delivering power. They were God's elect people, sucked right out of the land of Egypt where they had been slaves, moved right through the Red Sea which drowned the whole army of Egypt. They had tremendous privilege. They were led by God and they had seen the display of God's power that would be unequaled. In fact, the greatest expression of God's delivering power prior to the cross of Jesus Christ was the Exodus. That is why until the Lord's table, the greatest festival in redemptive history was what? The Passover. When God delivered his people out of Egypt. That was the greatest display of God's delivering power prior to Calvary. All of them had the privilege of being led by God. All of them had the privilege of seeing God's divine power displayed on their behalf. And verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, that is not an easy verse to understand. At first, what in the world does it mean to be baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea? Some suggest, well, uh, they were baptized in the cloud means that uh, if you're a Presbyterian, the cloud rained on them and they got sprinkled. That's true. Some commentators have said that. It's interesting. And others have said no, and they were all baptized in the sea in the sense that they got immersed. The problem with those two views is it wasn't a rain cloud and they walked through on dry land, so those don't fly. So what in the world is he talking about when he says they were baptized into Moses? Very simply, the word baptizo doesn't always have to refer to water. It means to be immersed. It means to be immersed. You might say, well, you know, I came to college and my first week at school, man, I was, I got my baptism of fire. What did you mean? You mean you got licked up by flames? No. You meant you got immersed in uh, the challenge. He got his baptism. When he went to work for a difficult company or he went to boot camp. In other words, it simply means, and it does in English, to be immersed into something. And what it's saying here is is similar to what we have in Romans 6, when it says when you became a Christian, you were baptized into Christ. It doesn't mean water there. Romans 6, we always say, is dry. It means you were immersed into Christ. In what sense? You died on the cross in him and you rose in his resurrection to walk in newness of life. It means identification. It means union. It carries the idea that you are made one, and that's exactly what it means here. They were all immersed together into the leadership of Moses. They were joined with God's appointed divine leader who, by the power of God, could do wondrous things. Wondrous things. It was Moses, you remember, that was God's tool to bring about the plagues. It was Moses who spoke to the rock and the water came forth it was Moses who was the human agent by which God provided manna every day and, and even meat on occasion. What it means is they were all led under one great leader. They were one united community immersed into the leadership of Moses. Here was a privileged people. They had the direct guidance of God. They saw the direct delivering power of God. And they were all collectively moved along by God's appointed leader. It's a marvelous picture of privilege. And it's not unlike the church, where we are led by God's Holy Spirit, where we see God's delivering power in terms of salvation, and where we are immersed into Jesus Christ, who is the head of His church. And so with Israel, they had great privileges. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food, manna. It's called spiritual food, even though it was edible, because its source was God, It was derived from the Spirit of God. It was divine provision. So they were privileged to be guided by God and delivered by God and united with God and fed by God. Verse 4, they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. God provided their food and he provided the water. And that spiritual rock was Christ. What does that mean? I believe that the children of Israel moving through the wilderness, it says right here, had someone following them. They were followed by a rock, and the rock was Christ. You say, what in the world is that? I'll tell you what it is. In the Old Testament, there were what we call Christophanies, pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ. And when the Lord appeared prior to his incarnation, the second member of the Trinity often appeared... Under the title, the angel of what? Of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. And here it tells us that the children of Israel were attended to by the angel of the Lord. They were never allowed to thirst in the desert. Water was provided for them from a supernatural source. The angel of the Lord, the rock being the pre-incarnate Christ. Manna and water were evidences of the presence of the second member of the Trinity who was attending to their needs Tremendous privilege Tremendous privilege They were led by God. They were delivered by God. They were guided by him. They were united with him They were fed and provided water and all the necessities by his loving care That's privilege tremendous privilege Through the sea, that's emancipation. They were set free. Under the cloud, that's guidance. They were led. Baptism into Moses, that's identification with a new assembly under a God-given leader. Manna and water, that's supply, sustenance. All those privileges. And I look at the privileges we have today, and, and those are the same things. We have been emancipated from sin. We've been set free. We are given every moment of every day the guidance of God through the leading of the Holy Spirit who's not outside of us in the sky but dwelling within us. We are identified not with a human leader like Moses, but we are united in identification with Jesus Christ so that we can say, For to me to live is Christ. And we are given the spiritual manna and the spiritual water so that our hearts never hunger and our souls never thirst. We have the full supply. We have all things that pertain to life and godliness. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We lack nothing. All of that spiritual goodness is given us in Christ. And we here at this college are so marvelously blessed because we have all of that in rich abundance. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. We have been delivered from the world. We have been led into a new and rich fellowship with Jesus Christ and with each other. We have been sustained by the word, the food, and the water of life, blessed beyond most. And like Israel, we've seen and experienced the power of God. And then comes the shocker. In verse five. And the first word is striking. Nevertheless. That could be translated in spite of all that spiritual privilege. With most of them, God was not well pleased. That's sad. Talk about unrequited love. Talk about blatant ingratitude. There it is. What do you mean with most of them? You mean really most of them didn't please God? Yeah. You want to know uh, how serious it was? God was not pleased with any of them except two Joshua, who's the other one? Caleb. Are you ready for this? The rest of them, up to two million, died in the wilderness. Two. That is amazing. In Numbers 14, 16... It says, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which he swore to give to them, therefore he has slain them in the wilderness. Do you know that that actually puts the execution of those people right in the hands of God? He saw saw to it that they died without ever entering the promised land. He was not pleased with most of them. Now let me tell you something. I'm not under any illusions. I've been around Christianity long enough. I've pastored a church long enough. And now I've been around this college long enough to know this. That that is still the case. I'm not under any illusion that everybody who comes to the Master's College and leaves the Master's College, God is going to be pleased with That would defy any significant comparison here. If there were two million people and God was only pleased with two of them, that's a frightening reality, isn't it? We don't assume that because we have great spiritual privilege and because you name the name of Christ and you come here, that that automatically means God is well pleased. We would like to think that every one of you would come through here and God would be well pleased with you and you would go out of this place into some promised land of effective service, some promised land of effective ministry, some promised land of blessing. But you won't. Oh, I guess I'm not so optimistic. I'm not so pessimistic, I should say, that I think there are only two of you. I think we'll do better than that, a lot better than that. But I wouldn't be satisfied until it were true of all of you. You know, it's, there's a very vivid verb here. It says they were laid low in the wilderness. That's a verb that means strewn like corpses. They were disqualified. They were, they experienced what Paul didn't want to experience back in chapter 9, verse 27. He didn't want to be disqualified, they were. Disqualified for service. They couldn't go into the promised land to evangelize the Canaanites. They couldn't go in there to build a great nation through, through the proclamation of the true God, Yahweh. They weren't useful. They were too corrupted. And God had to start all over again. Paul feared that he might be so corrupted God couldn't use him either. You have so much we could say to Israel, and you forfeited it all. Now, what went wrong? Because this is what we need to know. What went wrong? What What was it that only allowed a few to go in? God was generous, and it wasn't just the two. God spared enough to go in and populate his people. But they were the children of the original generation that all died off. What was it? I mean, if there's a danger in spiritual privilege, what what made them fall? And That's the lesson. Let's see the abuses, verse 6. Now, these things happen as examples for us, and I need to stop at that point and say, the whole point of telling the story here is so we can hear it and learn from it. And here's the abuses. Number one, this is an example for us that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Uh, the first, let's just call the first, sin worldliness, worldliness. They lusted after evil things. They were longers after evil things. It's pretty clear. Uh, if you go back into the Old Testament, you can you can see exactly what that means. I mean, it's it's laid out as. Explicitly as it can possibly be laid out. For example, in uh, Numbers 11, verse 4, And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. It and also the sons of Israel wept. They're crying. They're out there so greedy, they want so badly what they want, that they're crying. Can you imagine adults? Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of adults wandering around crying and saying, Who will give us meat to eat? We're sick of manna. We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlics. Sounds pretty brutal to me, frankly, but if you like it, I guess it's okay. Now our appetite is gone and all we ever get is this manna. Verse 34, so the name of the place was called Kibrath-hatava, because there they buried the people who were greedy. They didn't have a problem with their diet anymore. But that's typical of their lusting. They wanted what the world had to offer. The things of the world. Not necessarily evil, just the things of the world. wanted certain food and luxuries. They were preoccupied with a worldly lifestyle. They had been freed and they had been led and they had been united with Moses. They had been blessed and sustained by God, but they were disqualified for further service to God and their bodies were scattered all over the desert because they failed to bring their hearts into devoted love to God and gratitude for what they had and they were lusting for what they didn't have. Liberty opened the door and lust came in to live. Lust for the stuff of the world. Secondly, verse 7, they fell into idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. This really hit the issue at Corinth. The Christians were saying, we can still attend the festivals, we can still attend the celebrations, the social events, the ceremonies of our religious society, because religion was so much a part of their society. It was the the mystery religions and mysticism and all was woven into the fabric of their culture. And so they would come to the Lord's table and then they would go to a a temple feast and Jesus uh, would be dishonored there and demons would be reigning there. And that's why Paul says in chapter 11, you can't come to the table of the Lord on Sunday and on Monday go to the table of demons. But they thought they could. They were so tied to idols that they were still carrying on some of that idol activity, I-D-O-L. The same was true of Israel. They were barely out of Egypt. I mean, they barely got through the Red Sea. And it's such a Incredible thing. They barely got through the Red Sea. They just get out of there. They're in the wilderness on the way to the Promised Land. And before much time passes at all, they build a golden calf. Incredible. Incredible. And they even assume that this golden calf is to replicate Jehovah, or Elohim is the word that is used, the the term for God. They they make God into an idol, which is blasphemous. And in Exodus 32, they say, Now that we've built this golden calf, which is supposed to be God, we will now have a feast to Jehovah. Now, God does not permit us to worship any other gods. That is blasphemy, but it is an equal blasphemy, not only to worship another god but to turn the true God into an idol. And they are worshiping the true God, they think. In fact, in verse 4 of Exodus 32, they are worshiping the God who brought them out of Egypt. They confused God with idols. They misrepresented God. They didn't understand God to be who He really was. And the Corinthians were confused about that, too. They thought they could go in and do their little deal with the with the uh, communion service and then go off and do their idol feast. You see, they were so corrupt. You know what they would actually do? Come to the Lord's table and then go engage themselves with a temple prostitute. And that's why the apostle says, Do you think you can take Christ and join him to a prostitute? Now they had their, their worship in the church and then they had their idolatry. And that's why they got so messed up on the gift of Tongues. The gift of tongues is a gift of languages, real languages. They're listed in Acts 2. But that's not what was going on in Corinth. You say, where did they learn that stuff? Where did they get those ecstatic languages? They got them when they went over to the pagan temples. They got them the same place the, the, Del, the oracle at Delphi got them, or the whirling dervishes got them, or any of those mystical religions that were engaged in ecstatic speech, They got it from them. And what they were saying was not honoring God. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, no man by the Holy Spirit stands up and curses Christ. They would stand up in their church and spouting off this mystical, ecstatic speech, demon-inspired, they would curse Christ and assume somehow it belonged in Christian worship. And that's why Paul has to deal with that issue, and it takes three chapters to do it. They were all mingled, messed up, and confused with idolatry. Paul has to write in chapters 8, 9, and 10 how to sort some of that out. They, they wanted to worship the true God, but they wanted to hang on to the, to the sensational, mystical, feeling, emotional experience kind of stuff that came from their paganism. It wasn't enough for them that, what I told you the other night, that Christianity was mental and it was based on truth, and they were worshiping a Jesus, but it wasn't always the true Jesus, it wasn't always the true God, and they would even carry this into the Lord's Table. You remember, they would go to the Lord's Table, and because pagan festivals were drunken orgies, they would come to the Lord's Table, and the Apostle Paul says, what are you doing? You come to the Lord's Table, and some of you are drunk. I mean, they were so confounded with idolatry and the truth that they were on the brink of severe judgment. We see this even today. Confronted a wife sleeping with another man, than her husband, to which her comment was, I have such peace, leave me alone, so I can worship God in my own way. What? I've had many people say to me in the midst of an adultery, I've never had such peace. I just know this is God's will. What does it mean they sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play? Quoted out of Exodus, well, it just means they, they went to idol festivals and you know what they were? You ate, you drank, and then you got up and you played. What kind of play? You elicit Dancing. Amusements connected to idolatry, fertility rites, Bacchanalian festivals. I was in the city of Baalbek, which is in the easternmost point of the, Roman, of the ancient Roman Empire. It's east of Damascus in the Middle East. And I happened to be able to see there the ruins of the Bacchanalian temple that was there. and Its ruins are in tremendous condition. And uh, they had these pillars, and on those pillars they had vines and grapes to celebrate the drunkenness and in the middle of the floor of this temple where they went for the bacchanalian sex orgies and feasts was a huge pit where they would gorge themselves with food and drunkenness and then they would vomit in the pit and go back and do it again horrifying kinds of behavior that's called by the way the temple of Bacchus the god of wine and you can see it if you ever can get to Baalbek Now, uh, this, uh, this kind of thing is, is the same term when it says they stood up to play that is used in Genesis 26.8 when it says and Rebekah was caressed by Isaac. Now, I don't want to get too graphic here, but that was a conjugal caress. If you need to visit the library to look that up, you can do that. So here they were with all the spiritual privilege committing sexual sin. Idolatry, and God killed three thousand of them in one day. And the Corinthians were doing basically the same thing. Down in verse fourteen of chapter ten, flee from idolatry, he says. Down in verse twenty, the Gentiles sacrifice, and they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. There are idols in our society today. Fame, money, sports, education, entertainment, food, music, clothes, cars, house, whatever. Idols of the heart. Ezekiel talks about. And idolatry of any kind is libel on the character of God. It is worshiping God in the wrong way. It is so serious. We should be so completely focused on God that he is the only delight of our hearts. So, the abuses, worldliness and idolatry. Thirdly, immorality. You knew that from what I just said. Look at the next verse, verse 8. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Now, Corinth was so debauched morally that there was a Greek verb. The Greek verb to Corinthianize means to go to bed with a prostitute. I mean, Corinth was synonymous with wickedness. The temple in Corinth was dedicated to Venus, and it had many prostitutes that engaged the worshipers there. How could the Corinthian church escape this? Well, it wasn't easy. They had allowed their freedom, supposedly who indulge themselves in that wickedness. And this is a great concern to me, because I know the world we live in, and I know how it comes on so strong in the area of immorality. And I know that there are many of you right here who are going to be disqualified because of immorality. It's going to happen. It hasn't happened already. It's not happening right now. It's going to happen. And that breaks my heart, because you will have wasted spiritual privilege. The tremendous opportunity that is yours and the tremendous investment being made in your life. And you will, after all this opportunity and all this preparation, disqualify yourself. And maybe even die. By some terrible disease or whatever. How tragic. They got involved in worldliness and idolatry and immorality and the same exact thing the Corinthian church got involved in. And he says, you are on the brink. Fourth, verse 9. Boy, this is really important. Nor let us test, test or try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. I'm not going to go back to Numbers 21 and read that for you. What it means is they just pushed God's tolerance further and further and further and further and they just kept pushing until God said, That's all. That's all. I mean, I only take so much, as he says in Genesis 6, My spirit will not always strive with man. There is a limit. You can only go so far. In Numbers 21, 6, says the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people so that many of the people of Israel... Died. Sent snakes to kill him. Why? Because they just kept testing his patience. They they really kept trading on his loving kindness, abusing his mercy and his grace and his tender heartedness and his forgiveness. So sad, you know, when people have the attitude, How much can I get away with? rather than how much can I be like Christ. How close can I be to God? How much can I do and still survive? How how far can I push the edge? And snakes came and killed them. You don't want to ever ask what can I do and get away with it. You want to ask what can I do that'll draw me to Christ. And then number five: worldliness, idolatry, immorality, testing God. And complaining. I like that. You say, complaining? How did that get in that list? That's just sort of a normal thing, isn't it? Well, it says in verse 10, they grumbled and were destroyed by the destroyer. Ooh, you say you mean God doesn't like a bad attitude? You got it. With all those gross vices, how did complaining get in there? God hates complaints. He hates them. Complaining is giving audible expression to unwarranted dissatisfaction. And that dissatisfaction, therefore, is dissatisfaction with God. When you complain and grumble, you are showing that you are dissatisfied with God's work and purpose and unfolding plan in your life. And in Exodus 16, 2, it says the whole congregation grumbled because that is that is contagious. God hates complainers. God loves those who have a thankful heart. Listen, your life is the way it is minus your sin because it's the way God wants it. And you're where you are because God wants you there. And your conditions are what they are because God wants them that way. And if he didn't want them that way, they wouldn't be that way because he'd make them the way he wanted them. As in number sixteen three it says, You have gone far enough. The Lord is not going to listen to any more of your complaints. And fourteen thousand seven hundred people died. Boom, like that. By the destroyer. Who's the destroyer? The rabbis called him Mashith. An angel. Destroyer angel. He slew the firstborn in Egypt. He was ready to slay in the plagues of Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 24. He destroyed the Assyrians in 2 Chronicles 32. 185,000 of them. Destroyer angel. Death to the complainers. Wow. You mean to tell me complaining is a capital offense? It is with God, if he so chooses. And you need to learn what Paul learned. He said, in whatsoever state I am, I've learned to be what? Content. That's what Daryl was telling us last week. There they are. Worldliness, idolatry, worshiping stuff, things, immorality, sexual sin, presumption. Constantly testing God, testing God, presuming on his grace, and finally complaining. flirting with the world and its idols and its morals pushing the patience of God to its limit, complaining when you don't get what you want, when you want it, the way you want it, is a tragic thing, my friends. In the past, it's resulted in death. On the basis of that, there comes an admonition. Verses 11 and 12. Now, these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction. You better learn what this teaches. We're living now in the end of the age. He's talking about the New Testament era. And that happened to them as an illustration of what might happen to us. We better learn from it. And what we need to learn is in verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he what? Fall. That's the exhortation. The subtle deceiving illusion that spiritual privilege secures us. It doesn't. Again and again, the fortress of spiritual privilege is successfully assaulted by the enemy. And you better be alert and you better be watchful, particularly for these five sins, because they're always on the horizon. You say, Well, John. If all of this is going to come at me and it does, it comes at all of us. It comes at me. I, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. I don't know if I can handle it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Because of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. You know what that means? We're all in the same boat, folks. When you come to me and you tell me about your temptations, I'm saying, oh, I understand. Don't play pious. When somebody comes to you and says, you know, I'm really struggling with this in my life. Don't say, oh my, you are? I, it's hard for me to relate to. Give me a break. We're all there. But know this, it's just common stuff. We're all in there. But God is faithful and he will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So don't say, I, I, I couldn't handle it. It's not so. You chose not to. You're able. But with that temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's the hope. Young people, I want you to know something. I believe that the enemy will work overtime on those who have the greatest spiritual privilege. You are a force for the kingdom and for the glory of God as you are a a part of this institution, we would trust and pray that you would go through this place and that you would maintain your purity and your virtue and your holiness and your devotion to Christ. Not that you would be perfect, but that you would deal with the sins of your life and that you would be on the upside of the spiritual struggle and you would be honoring Christ and that God would say with them, I'm well pleased, so that you could go out and apply this immense spiritual privilege to an effective life for the glory of Christ. We don't want you to be casualties. We don't want to see your body strewn all over the wilderness, rendered useless. But you've got to start with realizing that when you have spiritual privilege, you will be under assault. And that Satan is going to try to bring you down in the same ways he's done it in the past. But God is faithful. And if you stay close to him... You're going to be able to handle all of it. All of it. And you're going to endure. And in the end, you're going to be mighty in the purposes of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise you've given us that no temptation will come on us. But such as is common to man and your faithful who will always make a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Father, help us to understand the dangers of spiritual privilege and to stay close to you, close to your word, so that we don't become useless. Protect every precious life here so that their privilege may be the foundation for a life of great usefulness. For Christ's sake, amen.